We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. everybody. Before we get started, I just want to give everyone a heads up that we will be discussing domestic abuse and violence. If you would prefer to miss out on those discussions, then we encourage you to skip these episodes and catch up with us when we release our next batch of episodes talking about a book that is actually good. Uh, I suppose it's convenient that we're recording this at the hottest time of the world ever, because is this not the hottest book of all time for middle schoolers, I guess? <laughs> I mean, realistically, we should be recording about this in probably not pouring rain, but the gentle drizzle that really defines mm. the Pacific Northwest when it's not under a heat dome. So we are actually working very, I feel like, contrary to the mood of this book. Uh, oh, whose turn? What? Which episode did we record last? What a great question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, someday, dear listener, please accept my humble apologies for the fact that we go through this every single time. Yeah. Never once have we thought to mark down who said the intro last. And then this season, we decided to jumble the order of the episodes. So that argument doesn't even make sense anymore. Doesn't even matter. I, You know what? In that sense, I guess I can go. Okay. So, hello, and welcome to Reread the Podcast, where we talk about children's books, or books at least that we read as children, which we are defining as 18 and under. On this episode, we are talking about Twilight by Stephanie Meyer? Mayer? I normally hear Mayer. Stephanie Mayer. Look at that. We didn't have to debate for five minutes about how to say her name. So, Well, just watch. It's going to be Meyer now. Hi, um, I'm Stephanie Meyer. Anyway, so yeah, this is the classic book of middle school. I think it came out around middle school time for me. Mm -hmm. You're younger than me, so it must have been elementary school time, right? I read it in middle school, and the series wasn't fully out, but a lot of it was released. So this came out in fall of 2005, which means, yes, I was in the last year of elementary school when this originally came out. So I, okay. I was in high school at that oh. point. I, I, Freshman year of high well, school. Ah, uh, yeah. So you just started. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, still definitely strong middle school vibes. But mm. we were young, impressionable kids when this book landed with an explosion. Truly. And um, like all books written by women, apparently... Back in school, it was very divisive among male and female lines. And uh, uh, I never personally read it as a youngster. This was your book, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And uh, you talk. What were your impressions of this book <laughs> as, a, as a baby? I, I just feel how much you're awkwardly like trying hard not to like open hating on it. 
<laughs> but yeah, so I think that, like many people of my age, I have a complicated history with Twilight. So I read it for the first time in uh, 2000, 2007 or 2008. And it was a part of like a Christmas present. Let's see, did, was it even a Christmas present or did I buy it myself? God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the point is, it came around Christmas time, and it came with another book, Wicked Lovely, by Marissa, also Mayer. <laughs> Funnily enough. Hi, Morgan here. Popping in to say I made a goof and said the wrong author name, although uh, Marissa Meyer is, in fact, a YA author. The author I was actually referring to is Melissa Marr. Uh, who wrote the Wicked Lovely series. So that is a Melissa Marr, not Marissa Mayer. So those two series are very associated in my mind, especially because for me, they were two of the first series I read that really centered romance. And yeah, I was 12 or 13 at the time. And I, the previous books I'd read really hadn't had romance at their center if they'd had romance in them at all. Like, I had generally believed myself to be fairly disinterested in romance as a topic. Twilight was the first book I ever read where I was like, oh, never mind, I do like romance. I do find this interesting to read and, and think about. And so for me, it's the significance of this series is that it really opened the doors for me to read a lot more types of books and start realizing that I enjoyed different types of stories. I fell absolutely in love with it because I think anytime you read the first of a of a genre like a type of genre and you're like, oh I like this genre mm. then you like become very attached to it. It's what introduced you to that. It it has that sentimental everything going on. And I got into Twilight I want to say it was in eighth grade and therefore 2008. You sold 2000 and late. I got into it like not long before the fourth and final book was due to come out, which it came out that summer. It was, I like didn't get involved in the fandom or anything. Like that was never my scene. Mm. But I was just constantly rereading the books, partially because I knew the next one was coming out and I was so hyped for it and I enjoyed it so much. Partially because I was having, eighth grade was not a good year for me for various mm. personal reasons. And so I really relied on all of my books, but especially the Twilight series, as a refuge from that. So, like, to this day, weirdly enough, even though I lived in the California Central Valley at the time, which, like, if you don't know, is a pretty sunny, flat, dry place, <laughs> there's this weird way in which my eighth grade I remember as vaguely cloudy and rainy. Not because it actually was, but because I reread these books so often. Yeah, Twilight is probably the book I have reread re the most out of any book. Just because that year, that was the book that I just kept coming back to again and again and again. Mm. So there was a point in time where I would have, when I was in eighth grade, when I was going through that, when I would have said, these are the best books on the planet. <laughs> this is the best writing you've ever seen in the world, etc., etc." I know Casey's like dying. Oh, God. So, like, I would have said those things. And, you know, as I've grown up, I never went through the full um, Twilight hating phase. I think, like, a lot of people who really liked Twilight, I went through a phase of being slightly embarrassed about how much I'd liked it. Mm -hmm. And certainly, I've, I've come back to it since and, and reevaluated it. And at this time, 
they're purely, I still reread them, um, not super often, but I will say like every normally couple of years, I'll do a reread, uh, not because I think they're fantastic literature or, you know, like the best things that have ever happened to this universe, but because for me, they're extremely sentimental mm. and rereading them always brings me a sense of comfort and safety hmm. because that's what they did for me. So they are very important to me. And I know that, believe me, I have seen all the f***ing discourse and we will get into the f***ing discourse. Like there is discourse to be had about these books. Some of it's legitimate, some of it's not. But like, I never had the experience that I know some other girls had of thinking that Edward and Bella were the ideal relationship and the kind of relationship I wanted to have. And they never... Even though I read them at 12, 13, and this was my first, like, real experience with literary romance, I never wanted uh, Edward. I never <laughs> wanted to be Bella. That was not really what was going on there for me. I don't have a lot of the the negative associations some other people have where this book might have given them uh, toxic ideas about relationships. Right. And there's more to be said about that whole thing because yeah. I, I understand where they're coming from, but I also think there's a kind of larger problem than Twilight with what's happening there. And we can get into that. But I, I did want to say up front that like I do know there are people that do have very negative personal reasons for disliking this book. Yeah. And I acknowledge that that was definitely not the case with me. And I've had suffered absolutely no negative repercussions from liking Twilight. And I would say it has brought me nothing but positive feelings um one other thing i'll front load and then i'll let casey talk about his first impressions but i do also want to front load that i know a lot of the more current discourse about the book is about stephanie mayer's especially in later books representation of uh the indigenous people the quilut who live in force area and her using them and giving them a fictional history and making them werewolves and just not being very respectful about like actual an actual indigenous tribe like it's it's not good <laughs> so i do want to acknowledge that and also acknowledge too that i believe they're currently um dealing with some land issues i think because of global warming they're dealing with just some like one sec let me look this up really quick so i get uh, this of right of course so what is going on is, and there's a whole site on this, right now, their current land is in an at-risk area because they are located in the tsunami zone at the edge of the Pacific Ocean. So they are campaigning to try and move to a safer ground. Um, moving to higher ground is what they're saying. And so they have a whole website about it. You can donate to them and help them and... A lot of people, when the most recent Twilight book came out, if they bought the book, they also donated an equivalent amount to the Quailoop tribe. And I, I would say that if you have read these books and you want to do some good for the people that did were used for these books, then this is a really good way to do it. Well, there you go. We're doing the Lord's work, I suppose. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think parts of why this book got so much backlash when we were young and it first came out was because it's drawing from tropes of the romance genre. And I think especially for kids our age, 
I'm, I have to imagine that our uh, exposure to the romance genre was not a very big one. Mm-hmm. I think that's safe to say generally. So when you have certain tropes that appear in this book and you have parents reading this book and they're like, eek, this is horrible. It kind of gets, I don't know, because I do have issues with the way certain things are depicted in this book. And we'll get into that. But I also think to some degree that stuff is overblown or we shouldn't we shouldn't necessarily pin it all on Mayer because mm-hmm. she didn't come up with these tropes. So we have to contextualize it a bit and understand that these behaviors in real life would would be major red flags for an abusive relationship or an abusive partner or whatever the case might be. Yeah, Stephanie Meyer didn't come up with that. She's drawing from other sources for that sort of thing. And one of those sources being the book that we talked about the previous week, which, (laughs) you know, Heathcliff is a very abusive person, and yet he's still cast by many as a romantic hero. Mm -hmm. So, again, I didn't... I think I read, like, the first 10 pages of this book, it was just bored out of my mind <laughs> as a kid. And, and so I just never followed up. And all that I knew about the book was what I heard from my friends at school who were mostly male. And of course they said, oh, this book is for girls. It's stupid. Which is a thing that still happens with this book and many mm-hmm. books like it. And uh, that's a stupid reason to hate this book. Mm-hmm. A legitimate reason to hate this book is that it's just very bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, uh, ay, ay, ay. Anyway, I mean, I'll. Yes, I'll, I will save your rant. <laughs> yes, I'll save my rant and I'll try to contain because I do think they're. I guess my impression of this book, reading it now, knowing all of the discourse that surrounded the, the book. And so finally having read it from beginning to end and just my reaction was like, this is the book that launched all this discourse. This is the book that launched a thousand ships. This is, to me, it's not really remarkable in any way. That's not to say there aren't interesting bits, but man, it's just like, This is just one of those things that any kind of cultural discussion around it kind of just got out of hand. It's like the satanic panic or anything dealing with Harry Potter, (laughs) just burning Harry Potter books. It's just like, everyone calm down a little. It's, It's a bad book, in my opinion, but it's not that bad. Uh uh, uh, that that's my general impression. I think we'll we'll move into the summary, but first I I'm gonna be obnoxious and do a little bit more like info dumping. It's been over a decade that I've lived with these books. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, I just have a lot of like random knowledge, but I think it's important to also contextually say because you're like, really, this is it. This is the book. Mm-hmm. The Twilight was a bit of an innovator in some ways. I agree with you. Absolutely pulled on so many tropes of the romance genre of like various things. Stephanie Mayer is not super original. Mm-hmm. 
but was original in that similar to Harry Potter before it, whereas like when Harry Potter happened, people are like, oh, kids like reading. Mm. A shock. Kids books can also be like fun for adults. A shock. Mm. You know, this was like a phenomenon, right? Yeah. Similarly, for a long time, the there were kids books. And then there were adult books, and there wasn't really a lot of in-between. Now, certainly there were authors out there doing the Lord's work, writing for teenagers, but, like, there weren't a lot, and there wasn't, like, that section didn't really exist. Stephanie Mayer and Twilight made publishers realize that this was a market, and we have her to thank for all of the YA pretty much since, the, like, explosion of YA we've seen. A lot of that is thanks to Stephanie Mayer. We just didn't have that before. Especially in terms of, like, romance books for teens. Again, they existed, but a lot of them were um, contemporary romances. Like, you know, the Saradescens of the world. Fantasy, the paranormal romances, all of that can be traced back to Twilight for the most part. And it's not that people weren't trying to write these books before. They were. They just weren't getting published. So I think that because Twilight was like sort of the first, and this is, again, like you said, this is so everything in Twilight, all of the problematic tropes in Twilight, they're in other things. They're in other popular things. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me is I'm like, yeah, watch some Indiana Jones and let's talk about how like not toxic those relationships Uh were. I never meant to hurt you. I was a child. I was in love. It was wrong and you knew it. You knew what you were doing. But no one's freaking out over Indiana Jones because it's not aimed at young teenage girls. Mm -hmm. And so I do think a lot of the panic was this very like, we must protect our young women. It's a classic uh, excuse to use for anything. Yeah, pretty much. Again, this is not excusing Twilight for any of its problematic elements. And I have really enjoyed, uh, there's been a Twilight renaissance in the recent years of (laughs) other people of our age returning to and reconsidering Twilight. And a lot of their concerns, I really feel like, are much more interesting and legitimate, like the ones I raised about Stephanie Mayer's depiction of indigenous characters. But yes, a lot of the initial panic, I think, was really just that these tropes were being aimed at teenage girls. Right. All right. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) With all that said, at least this time, this summary is going to be so easy. You guys aren't going to have to listen to me for that much longer before Casey can go into his rant about... Well, I feel like you have multiple you can choose from. The, yeah, There's it's going to be, be so hard. Many options. <laughs> but let's do, let's do this. We open on Bella Swan, young high school girl who is moving from Phoenix, Arizona to Forks, Washington, and she is not happy about it because she hates the rain and the cold. And small towns and forks is all three of those things. And hashtag relatable. (laughs) She's leaving because her mother has gotten remarried to a minor league baseball player. And Bella felt bad about her mom feeling like she needed to stay and take care of her instead of traveling with her new husband. So now Bella's going to go live with her dad, Charlie, in forks and finish out her junior and senior years of high school. So... Bella arrives in Forks, and she's a phenomenon, because this town is small. It's tiny. Everyone knows everyone. And here she is, new girl from Phoenix. This is an exotic, interesting thing. (laughs) Everyone wants to know her. Everyone wants to be her. Every man wants to be with her. 
Which, like, honestly, okay, a lot of people have given this book shit about that, and I'm like, I do feel like that's what it's like, though, if you've... She said their entire high school is only, like, 300-something people. Yeah. So if you've grown up with, like, you know, less than 100 people in your grade your entire life, and you're attracted to, like, women, and all of a sudden <laughs> a new girl shows up, I'm sorry, that's just how it would be. I don't think that's one of the unrealistic elements of this book. Anyhow... <laughs> So Bella is meeting people left and right. Some of the important names, Mike, Jessica, Eric, Angela, important. Uh, Lauren, <laughs> Tyler. <laughs> well, there's they're just people I'm going to reference going forward. So I'm just putting their names out there as people that exist. Oh, God. But uh, the most significant people she doesn't actually meet because she doesn't talk to them. But she, she goes into the lunchroom and she sees five beautiful people. Absolutely just incredible, hottest people you've ever seen in your entire life. And Jessica tells her that these are the Cullens, and they're all children that have been adopted by Dr. Cullen and his wife. So they're not actually, well, two of them are supposedly twins and related, but they're not actually related. Also, they moved here like two years ago. They are very much like do their own thing couple of them are dating each other it's scandalous because they live together and dating the only single one is edward who bella's like the hottest one who he's got reddish brown hair dark eyes pale and bella's like wow (laughs) at her next class she walks in it's biology class she walks in and who is she going to be seated next to but edward cullen but as soon as he sees her, all of a sudden, he's just, like, murderously angry. Like, he's glaring at her like he wants to kill her. And spoiler alert, he dies. <laughs> Bella's like, what did I do? What's wrong? Do I smell? But he, like, storms out of class. And then when she sees him later on that day, after class is over, he's trying to get his class changed. So he's not in the same class as her anymore. Bella's like, what the fuck is going on with this guy? But she has no way of finding out because he's gone for the next few days of school. But then when he returns, all of a sudden he's different. His eyes are lighter and he's like being friendly when she walks up to him in biology class. And they have a a little conversation about why she moved. And he's like, wow, selfless. And Bella's like, I'm totally selfless. (laughs) Selfless is something Bella totally is. Anywho, after that conversation, she's, like, even more fascinated. But then, shortly after this, I want to say, like, the next day, it's forced, so it is cold and rainy, and uh, there's some ice on the roads, because it was especially cold and wet. And Bella is in the school parking lot, checking out her her tires and seeing that her dad put snow chains on her for her, which is very cute. And then she's suddenly, like, turns around... And there's a car skidding across the ice towards her. And it's going to crush her. And she sees Edward. And he's far away in the crowd. No way he could possibly save her. But then he does. He saves her from the rampaging truck. And she's like, how did you do that? You were so far away. And he's like, no, I wasn't. You hit your head. I was right here beside you, Bella. Mm. And she's like, you were not. And he's like, yes, I was. She's like, no, you weren't. And uh, finally, he's like, fine, I'll tell you later. Just shut up. Mm. Uh, so she goes to the hospital she meets his very hot adoptive dad Carlisle and then she's like alright Edward tell me what's up and he's like what are you talking about I was right beside you you hit your head and she's like I don't even have a concussion this is not a, a head injury thing going on here 
tell me what happened. And he's like, no. (laughs) And they both get very mad. And then they don't speak to each other for a long time. And then it becomes close to the girl's choice dance, which Bella's already decided to avoid because she's very clumsy and uh, really can't dance well. And also she's got like a lot of guys hitting on her that she's just not that into. And when I say not that into, she thinks they're pathetic and really just like sad people. She doesn't outright say it. Well, mm, ah, mm. we'll get to talking about how Bella discusses other characters later. Indeed. <laughs> but her friend Jessica really wants to go with Mike, but Mike is one of Bella's most ardent pursuers. So even though Jessica asks him, he's like, maybe. And then he goes to Bella and he's like, mm, I don't want to say yes to Jessica because I thought maybe you might ask me. She's like, go with Jessica. And this experience leads to Edward start talking to her again in the most cryptic, frustrating way. She also just gets asked out by, like, two other guys this day, even though it's girl's choice, which, like, she points out. But after this, Edward starts talking to her again, and they end up sitting together at lunch, and he's like, I can't tell you what's going on, but just know it would be safer if you weren't friends with me. And, yeah. And she's like, that's a weird thing to say, bud. (laughs) And then she's like, I have theories about what you are. And he's like, tell me. And she's like, no, you'll think they're stupid. And he's like, tell me. And she's like, Spider-Man. And he's like, that's the best you got? Yeah. Well, that sucks. (laughs) Oh, God. Embarrassing. Indeed. Embarrassing. Um, But before their budding friendship can... No, actually, this is the blood type when bud typing happens, which Bella faints inside of blood. Edward uh, chose to ditch class that day. Cough! Cough! (laughs) And then they end up uh, spending some time together as he takes her home from having fainted at the sight of blood. But he ends up going out of town for a little while because he's uh, going on a camp... Camping trips. (laughs) Air quotes. (laughs) And Bella ends up going to the nearby city of Port Angeles with Jessica and Angela so she can help them get dresses for the dance. While she's there, they're going to, like, do more shopping things. And she's like, I want to go find a bookstore. And so she wanders off on her own and ends up wandering into kind of a sketchier area of town where um, some men start following her with clear intent to do some kind of harm. And then, suddenly, just when they're about to corner her, a car roars in, skidding to a stop by her side, door flung open, and who does she hear but Edward telling her to get in? She hops in the car. They make their daring escape. And he's like, talk to me, Bella, so I don't go back and kill those guys. Say what? And she's like, I want to murder Tyler. Say what? Which is its whole own thing. One of the guys who asked her out to the dance has apparently decided they're going to prom together. And uh, this is why men suck. But (laughs) they end up going back uh, to tell Jessica and Angela she's okay. And then Edward's like, you need to eat. You're maybe going into shock. She's like, I'm not going into shock. But okay, let's get dinner together. Oh, I forgot all about the beach scene. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Right before they go to Port Angeles. Bella and some friends go down to the beach and end up meeting with some people from the Quailute tribe. Uh, One in particular, Jacob Black, who is the son of one of her dad's best friends. And Jacob ends up telling her a scary story that the Quailutes have about the cold ones. 
essentially it's it's a va- it's a vampire story and the Collins are the vampires. Mm. And so Bella's like, oh, is Edward a vampire? Do I care? <laughs> no. <laughs> so anyhow, this happened all right before this. Wait, there's also the riveting scene where we see Bella <laughs> trying to do some research. We watched Bella Google. With her dial up. Yeah. And oh, uh, it was 2005. Yeah, she does some research into vampires. <laughs> Nothing relevant, so don't worry about it. Actually, there's a part of it that's foreshadowing for later books, so that's fake. Oh, okay. But actually, they're even mentioned in this book. It's the one excerpt that she actually chooses to excerpt. Mm. That about the friendly Italian vampires. Or not friendly, the vampires on the side of good. Oh, right. Yes. So there actually is some relevant information in there. But yes, anyhow, this is the context for now. They're having dinner in Port Angeles, and uh, Bella thinks Edward is a vampire. She also thinks, uh, because there have been tidbits thrown out there this whole time, that maybe Edward can read minds. And uh, he's like, yep, I can't do that thing. I just can't read yours. And she's like, wow. And... As they're driving home together, she's like, hey, so I have a new theory. Well, she doesn't actually say that. He harasses her into telling him her theory. (laughs) Uh, She's like, my theory is vampires. And he's like, and you're still in the car with me? (laughs) She's like, yeah, well, I heard you don't drink humans. And he's like, well, that is correct, but still. (laughs) Poor life choice on your part, Bella. (laughs) And she's like... But I like you. Oh, uh, God. So anyhow, we have established that Edward is a mind-reading vampire. I will say, okay, there is one part of the scene that I do think is actually a decently good piece of writing, which is the part where Bella's like, how old are you? And Edward's like, 17. And she's like, how long have you been 17? And he's like, a while. That, that I like good... that exchange. I just thought I would call that one out since you're going to slam it for, oh, yeah, you know, the 98% of it that's it, bad writing. Yes. So over the next uh, few days at school, Edward and Bella get to know each other a little bit better, increase their flirtation. It's very clear there's some romantic business going on, but they haven't, like, fully codified that shit. And then that weekend, Edward is like, okay, so the rumors about, well, not rumors, the legends about how vampires can't go out in the sun are fake. But there is a reason I don't want to do that around other people, and it's supposed to be sunny this weekend, so if you want to come with me, I'll show you. But, like, also maybe you shouldn't because it will, it is just dangerous for you to be with me. (laughs) She's like, "Mm, I don't care about that. Let's go. So they end up hiking up to this clearing where Edward reveals that he sparkles. (laughs) And I, you know, I feel like the sparkling is another thing that's gotten a little bit of flack. Somewhat warranted. Somewhat not. Some of it is just the bad movie CGI of sparkles. It's more like... Uh, vampires are consistently described like they're kind of rock, like they're marble. And so he's described as sparkling like just a whole bunch of diamonds are embedded into his skin. And so he kind of goes with the whole rock motif uh, with the vampires, which like, if you want your your vampires all like Dracula, like, I guess. But there are like so many different legends of types of vampires. Right. I think it's stupid to get mad because someone's like, I don't know, just invent a new type of vampire. Right. Like I said, that's another one of the criticisms where I'm like, that's stupid. Right. I think it's it's one of those criticisms that's primarily because it's girly, quote unquote. Yeah. Rather than taking it seriously. I think it's bad, but because 
Well, I'll save it for later. We don't talk about it. Yes, yes. But okay, so they're they're in the clearing. They end up having the discussion about how Bella is in extra danger from Edward because to him, her blood just smells like he compares it to being a heroin addict faced with his brand of heroin, you know, mm-hmm. like just made special for him. It's hidden every single one of his olfactory buttons. Like, <laughs> it's just she smells like the best possible thing he could ever eat. Even though he's a vegetarian vampire, it's still hard to resist when faced with the best thing you could possibly ever eat. So they have a, t- a couple tense moments where it's like, maybe, maybe he eat, but he manages to overcome and they declare their love for each other-ish and they make plans for her to meet his family and him to meet her dad and Edward actually ends up staying the night at her place during which he also reveals he's been spending previous nights at her place watching her sleep. We'll get into that later. <laughs> so they end up going over to the Cullens house the next day. Uh, Bella meets most of the Cullens. Rosalie and Emmett are absent because Rosalie hates her. Bella finds out some about vampire history, vampire lore. Uh, not relevant for this book, so I'm just going to ignore it. <laughs> and she finds out two things of interest. One, that Alice can see the future. Kind of. And kind of. It is a, not a solid future. It's a yeah. future that's dependent, and she doesn't find out this all later, but yes, I should just lay it out right now. It's dependent on people's choices. So if you change your mind, the future changes. Until someone makes a decision, Alice can't see what that decision will lead to. So it's an interesting entry. I always love, actually, when characters can see the future because the writer really has to grapple with like how much they're going to buy into like fate being permanent. Mm-hmm. All of that. So I uh, I think Alice is uh, interesting just from that standpoint. It's Yeah, I, I mean, it's an interesting take on the power. It's moldable and that it creates some tension because when something changes, she gets another vision. And it's not like her powers bullshit. It, it seems to be the case that she actually sees the future, but it, it has some allowance for free will. Right. So generally, like, the further into the future she goes, the less clear it is because people's minds change more and you're factoring in more decisions that would have to stay the same for that future to happen. So there's very few things she can see far into the future and see are absolutely going to happen. But Alice has seen that a couple or a few vampires are going to be traveling through the area that are not veggie vampires. And therefore, Edward's like, just FYI, I'm going to be be like watching over you more because I'm a little concerned about you getting eaten. <laughs> I was like, there. <laughs> so they arrange that night. The Cullens are, it's going to storm. So the Cullens are going to play some vampire baseball, which requires uh. the storm to happen because they're really loud. So Bella goes home briefly to introduce Edward to her dad, Charlie, before they go out for the vampire baseball game. What should happen? But <laughs> while they're there... The other vampires, the ones that are not veggie that are traveling through, overhear the sound of the baseball game, and it changes their plans. And Alice is like, now they're coming here. And everyone was like, God, get Bella away. Can't get Bella away? All right, let's hide. Just very concerned about Bella. 
which they have reason to be because the vampires come. And as soon as they realize there's a human there, one of the vampires is like, gonna eat that human. Gonna eat her so much. And he's... His thing, uh, James is this vampire's name. They call him a tracker, but like think of him as like a hunter. He likes a good hunt. So as soon as he sees the Cullens defend her, he's like, definitely gonna eat her. <laughs> because if I can get around all these other vampires to eat her, like that will be satisfying to me. So the Cullens are desperately trying to figure out how best to protect Bella. And Bella is, ends up coming up with a plan where she's going to... Tell her dad that she can't stand Forks anymore and she's going back to Phoenix. And then Alice and Jasper will go with her and they will actually go to Phoenix. They're hoping to like throw him off the track by going to the one place that he would assume she wouldn't go to because she said she was going there, you know? And the rest of the Cullens will watch over Charlie and hunt down these vampires and hopefully take them out before they can take out Bella. Bella stages a huge fight with her dad, storms out, Goes to Phoenix with Alice and Jasper, where they sit in a hotel room, and she's very worried about various things, and then she ends up getting a call, and it's from James! He tells her that he has her mother, he's figured out she's in Phoenix, and she needs to get away from Alice and Jasper and come to him, or he will kill her mother. So she's like, okay, I will figure out a way to do this. And she's able to, through the horrible layout of the airport in Phoenix, which I've never been to, but apparently is very confusing, able to trick Alice and Jasper and get away from them and go meet up with James. Uh, turns out James doesn't actually have her mother. He just was playing a recording of one of like Bella's home videos. And he's like, gonna kill you now. But first, let me tell you about Alice's backstory. <laughs> Essentially, Alice didn't know where she came from, and James did, so huzzah. Um, <laughs> it's so stupid. The sad thing about it is it's actually kind of an interesting mystery, because, like, I, I'll i add this just because I think that one of my the critiques that I find most interesting of Twilight that I'll bring up later is that every single other character, or at least vampire other character, is more interesting than Bella and Edward. Mm. And I will agree tentatively that that is true. The other characters have much more interesting backstories, one of which is Alice's, where she has no idea where she comes from. She woke up as a vampire and she doesn't remember her human life at all. And she was able to develop a conscience and not eat people on her own without any support. She didn't even have whoever made her into a vampire. So like all on her own, she became Alice. But like, yeah, legitimately no idea where she comes from. And the solution to that mm. should have probably been saved for another book. And been a little more interesting. But instead, James is just like, yeah, she like already was a little bit psychic. Part of their whole theory is when they're made into vampires, one of their like key traits gets heightened. So like Edward can read minds because supposedly he was more perceptive as a human. Alice can see the future because she was already maybe a little bit, had a bit of a sixth sense for that mm -hmm. um, when she was human. And so supposedly, yeah, she was locked in an asylum with electric shock treatments to all that because of her visions. And uh, then... James wanted to eat her because she smelled super good to him. And then this other vampire was like, no, and turned her into a vampire to save her. And then James killed the other vampire. And yeah, that's Alice's origin story, which like is less interesting than what it could have been, especially if like the finding out process had been dragged out longer. 
Anyhow, then James is like, rawr, eat, munch, munch. But he's stopped from fully devouring Bella by the arrival of the cavalry. So after Bella's been beaten, the Edward and co arrive and they're like, we're going to save you, Bella. And luckily, Carlisle is a vampire doctor, so he's already like stitching her up. She's like, get my hand, it burns, it burns, it burns. How you turn someone into a vampire is by biting them, and then you're infected by their venom. And their venom will turn you into a vampire, but it hurts a shit ton. And they're like, oh no, he bit her. She's been infected by his venom. Edward, there's still time. You can suck it back out. <laughs> this would involve a great deal of restraint, because, again, Bella's blood is like heroin to him. But he does it. He sucks out the venom. Oh, God. But then later on, Bella's in the hospital uh, because she, again, was quite damaged in James's attack. And she's like, wait, why, why didn't you just let me turn, let it turn me into uh. a vampire? Like, I wish to be a vampire with you, boy I love. And he's like, being a vampire sucks. You do not want to be a vampire. And she's like, I do. And he's like, nah, this is, you're young. It's a crap. You'll get over it. Like, I'm here for as long as you want me to be here because I am, like, completely in love with you. But, like, I'm not turning you into a vampire. And she's like, you absolutely are. And they're kind of at an impasse with that. And that impasse continues to last in the book in which they go to the prom against Bella's will, I should add. Edward drags her here. She full did not want to go. But... She reminds him, like, she's going to get old and die if he doesn't turn into a vampire. And he's like, that's the way it should be. That's correct. And I'm not going to turn you into a vampire. I will say, so, the very last line is him bending down to, like, kiss her throat. And back in the day, um, and to be fair, I wasn't there for this, so this is all internet lore to me. Yeah. But, like, when the first book came out, people legitimately thought maybe he changed his mind in that last moment. And that that last moment was supposed to be one of those, like, did he do it? Wait, is he actually going to? Because it is a little bit. It is ambiguous. Yeah. Which, like, I will say that's probably another line that I like. I kind of like having that ambiguity at the ending. And, like, if Twilight had never gone on, it would have been kind of right. cool to have that moment. Right. Twilight does go on and he did not turn into a vampire. So, But I, I will say I do like that last line for the story. It's another moment that I was like, good job, Stephanie Mayer. I think it's a it's a smart last line just because i mean who the f knew that twilight was going to become right. twilight uh-huh and that's something that you see with like any kind of trilogy i guess this is quartet where you see the first part of any kind of series is generally the most complete self-contained story so like star wars is a, <laughs> a similar example if star wars had never happened you could have just lived with that one movie and it would have been a contained story. There were enough pieces there that you could build upon it, but you could be satisfied with just the first one. So, uh, yeah, there, there, there are moments of, of grace in this book. I don't know where to start because I have so many qualms with this book, but I am curious. This is going to be extremely pretentious, and I'm sorry about okay. that. But how can you tolerate such bad writing? <laughs> right. So I was actually thinking about this as I was reading the book because like, mm. I knew you really had a hard time with the bad writing. And a lot of people do. And that's fair. 
Stephanie Mayer's writing, I will say I think she's good at very particular things. And, like, if she'd become a horror writer, I think she could have done really well. Because I think some of her better writing is when she's writing the really horrific bits, which is more on display in some of the other books. But, like, certainly people have done, they've made (laughs) charts of how many times she uses, like, adverbs for speech tags and how many times she has Edward murmur. It's all very funny. And, like, I do actually... Especially when they make charts, it's very cute. I'm sorry, I have to interrupt. Just the the speech tags killed me. It's the number one sign of an amateur writer that they do not like using the word said. They will come up with any other word in the universe to describe how people speak. And it just, it's so bad. It reads so bad when it's constantly like, I murmured, I whispered, I gasped. Things like that. But the oh, the standout line for me was when the book says, I'm sorry, I apologized. This can't, no one, that could not have gone past the writer, the editor, the proofreader. How did that get past so many people, Morgan? I don't understand. I can't understand. Fair, I saw that line and it's, I'm sorry, I apologized again. No, it's, I'm sorry I apologized. Let me double check because I was looking out for that line (laughs) because you had, you had already uh, messaged me and been like, I can't. No, it's definitely, I'm sorry I apologized. Wait, are there then multiple times that this is used, Casey? It's, is that what we discovered here? I might have blacked out after that point. I can't remember. Wait, when was yours? I'm just, I'm now I'm really curious. Mine was around page, for me, my version, it was page 460. But like, what was happening? She, um, what was happening? It was like a few pages before they kiss each other and her heart literally stops and the heart monitor stops beeping. Okay, then it happens multiple times in the book. Oh, kill me. So yeah, okay, so because see, here we, I have, I'm sorry, I apologized again, which is towards the end when she's in the hospital. <sighs> oh, no, wait, before that, it's even the speech tag right before that is, I'm sorry, I apologized. So this is a recurring, a recurring motif <sighs> in the book. Anyway, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. It's all good. I've had conversations with various people uh, mm-hmm. about this, and I think it really depends on your style of reading. You are a meticulous reader Mm -hmm. like you really take your time absorb every word and when the writing is not good that's the worst Uh i i fulfill you like when i'm reading academic articles i'm i think much more critical of the writing because i'm it's a different kind of reading and i'm being very slow and meticulous like that when i read fiction it's not saying like that i don't i am still like absorbing all of it it's just that for me, like, sometimes I don't even notice the physical element of I'm sitting there reading a book. Because what happens is the story plays out like 3D surround sound movie. The words sometimes aren't there. That doesn't mean that, like, really bad writing... I mean, with really bad writing, I can't get ever get into it in the first place. If it's truly absolutely terrible writing, then it just gets put down because it's not going to work for me. Mm-hmm. I will say that Stephanie Mayer's writing... There are definitely elements of it that are amateurish, like absolutely, and and bad, you know, what we would categorize as bad writing. But it, like when you say bad writing, 
this kind of bad writing is so much better than actual really bad writing. Like this person cannot write writing. Mm -hmm. There are so many people out there and I know this from reading fan fiction, which means you get to see the full (laughs) spectrum of people who can write to people who can't write. Stephanie Mayer, she's okay. I'm not going to say her writing is good. I would say it's like mediocre. Mm-hmm. So for me, I because it's got this kind of bland quality to it, it just kind of disappears. I'm not like, right. there are books where I'll be reading and I will pause that little movie to be like, oh my God, that was gorgeous. There are books that I'm much more conscious of the writing style. And that tends to be either, like on either end of the spectrum, if it's really good writing, if it's really bad writing. This, I just, it's, it's, it's background noise. But that's because of the way I read. Yeah. And I understand that some people read very differently and therefore can't turn it off. Yeah. And it doesn't help that before reading this book, I reread Love in the Time of Cholera, which is just one of the most beautifully written books, in my opinion. So it's, it's, it was a harsh contrast to, to go up against for Mayer. I feel like I should say before I rant, this book, in my opinion, it's bad, but it's not as bad as people like to say. Like you said, there there have been worse writers in this world. We have arguably read worse writers for this podcast. Goosebumps exists in this world, yep. and we can't pretend that, that the writing in this book is as bad as goosebumps or even <laughs> worse than goosebumps it is certainly not that it's just there are lines that for me stuck out because it's just so hard to buy into any of the romance depicted in this book so i guess this this is where my rant will start is that mm-hmm. the the fantasy of the book really hamstrings the book in so many different ways edward is perfect in the most boring way possible he's described consistently as perfect looking like marble he's this one killed me he's described as godlike at multiple points and all these things that really tell you nothing and are so (laughs) vague and obnoxious it's impossible to connect with these characters and this is where the writing is weakest because This is part of the fantasy at the center of this book that Edward is perfect. So introducing a flaw would complicate that fantasy and make it a much more interesting book. But it would also undermine the fantasy that Bella, who in my read is basically just a stand-in for Mayer herself, this ordinary woman somehow manages to con the hottest man alive. I guess he's not alive. Yeah, he's very dead. The hottest man in existence into loving her. I get that. I think that's a fantasy that everyone participates whenever they just see the beautiful people out there. It would be great if that person wanted to kiss me. But you know how when people say, Oh, man, I had the craziest dream last night. Let me tell you about it. And internally, you're thinking, please don't, because there's just nothing as dull as listening to somebody else's dream. And I think the reason why is that they're they're just like, 
it's not grounded. There are no stakes. There's no consequences. There's nothing at risk. It's just like, here are some wacky details that happened. And you're like, oh, that yet? Well, that is wacky. What else do you want me to say? It's like this for this book where there's like, imagine a man who's just so flawless and perfect and godlike. And you're like, uh-huh, okay, great. So what? It just drove me up the wall that there was nothing interesting about this relationship. <laughs> and we spent the vast majority of this book just with these two characters sitting around in the grass and Bella just being like, wow, he's hot. He's so hot. Oh, he's hot. And I wanted something more. I I just think there's this idea that if Edward were to have flaws, that would make him somehow less desirable. But the thing is, you know, a little friction never hurts. It just feels like, like Stephanie okay. Mayer just dumped a tub of lube on this whole thing and everything's just... My God. <laughs> just, it's just too smooth. It's just too smooth of an experience. You just had to go for the grossest possible metaphor. <laughs> All right, so a couple of things to address. Uh, first, I will. I want to push back against your idea that Bella is just an insert for Stephanie Mayer. That's mm -hmm. been a thing that's been floated around for a long time. I always personally think it's really unfair to assume that writers want to be their main characters for various reasons, uh, especially because when women write romance, it's pretty much universally believed of them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really unfair kind of assumption to put at her feet. It might be true, it might not be, but like, I think we should never be jumping to that assumption because we don't tend to for male writers. So I think it is kind of a, one of those inherently sexist things that our culture tends to do. So I want to push back against that first. And then I think Twilight is conceptually really interesting. <laughs> I'm, <sighs> I'm going to sell you out of why. This is my okay. goal. <laughs> Let's hear it. Edward does have a major flaw. His major flaw is that he wants to eat her really, really bad. Uh, okay. He has other major flaws too, actually. And I will say, I think that's, I don't want to give Stephanie Mayer credit for this because I know for a fact that she doesn't see this. But Edward and Bella are both extremely flawed characters if you're not reading sheerly through the lens of Bella's adoration. Mm-hmm. Bella is a horrible person. <laughs> like, she's really not nice. If you look at how she discusses other people, um, and a lot of people pointed out how she discusses other women, she's, like, really not kind at all. Within the first day at her new school, she's getting irritated by everyone just trying to help her out. Mm -hmm. She's like, ugh, God, just acting like an overly helpful puppy. And I'm like, they're just trying to make you feel welcome. And make sure you know how to get to your classes. Like, she's so mean. She's so mean to all of them. And Edward's a huge snob. He does not care about human life and existence. He's a vampire and he thinks he's above that. He might be like, no, you like people should be humans. Being a vampire is wrong. But he is totally superior to all of them. You can tell. 
he can read all their minds. So he knows, like, all of their, like, worst little secrets. Mm-hmm. And he thinks he's above all that. He's not. But he, he thinks he is. Yeah. And I do think there's a whole other discussion to be had, and it's one of my favorite Twilight discussions to have, about whether any of this would have happened if Edward could not read Bella's mind. And I posit no. The only reason this happens is because he cannot read her mind. Yes. And I actually think all that's really interesting. I... Like, Bella acts like he's perfect. He's not. He's horrible. They're both horrible. Yeah. Horrible people. Stephanie Mayer doesn't know that. Yes. The book's narrative does not know that. But that's like, that's the thing. That's what I love about this book. <laughs> and that's yeah. why I think the Wuthering Heights comparisons, which she references once and then later on has them actually talk about. And they like ultimately conclude they're not trash people. But like, I legitimately think they're trash people obsessed with each other. And obsessed with each other because, yeah, for Bella, like, she has lived this very boring life where she also feels superior to everyone. Like, she thinks she's super smart. She's, like, had to sort of be the adult in the relationship with her mom. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't really have her. She calls her dad Charlie. She thinks she's, like, wise beyond her years, blah, blah, blah. She's never really had, like, close friendships with anyone her age because she, this is insinuated, she thinks she's better than all of them. Like, you can tell from her dialogue. Edward also thinks he's better than everyone. And then they meet each other and she's like, oh, he's perfect. And he's like, I can't read her mind. She's so (laughs) fascinating. And they become obsessed with each other. I think that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. It would be more interesting if Stephanie (laughs) Mayer knew that and like had that more at the forefront of the story. But like, I think it actually kind of, because it's in Belle's perspective, it makes more sense for their narrative not to be self-aware about that, I think. Right. But I think this is not like an idealized love story of like, oh, this shy girl who's like been so put upon her whole life. She's so selfish and so good. And then she meets this guy who's perfect mm-hmm. and he saves her. I'm like, no, this is a story about two really horrible people who meet each other and become obsessed with each other in all sorts of ways. And like the fact that he wants to eat her is interesting. (laughs) He really wants to eat her. (laughs) And, like, I think that plays into his fascination with her, too. Like, he's drawn to her because she smells like the best food ever. And then he can't read her mind. And I think that's why he falls in love with her. And in love, I put in quotes. Like, I agree with you. Like, they say they're in love really early. I think it's obsession. And I think that's what's interesting and dynamic about it. I believe, like, they're in love later on. Um, Sure. But, like, yes, they've known each other, like, two seconds they're not in love love but they're absolutely immensely infatuated with each other and obsessed with each other and i think that's interesting (laughs) i had many of the same thoughts they're all the potentially interesting things that could have been done with this book in terms of bella's perspective in terms of this romance in terms of whatever and are just not realized. I do want to go back and push back on your pushback because I totally hear what you're saying about assuming that the author and the main character are the same person. And I think that your reasoning is valid. I do not make the comparison lightly. I do think that Bella is a stand-in for Stephanie Mayer And the reason why is because of all the reasons you said where Bella and Edward in the narrative are cast as just the most perfect people. 
and to me that speaks of of a writer who's not really looking too closely at her own characters and that to me is something and to be clear this is not just a fault of stephanie mayer and it's certainly not just a fault of female writers male writers perhaps even more so are susceptible to this so the only reason i bring it up is because i think that's a big reason why this book is as flawed as it is and why it doesn't recognize that the characters are as flawed as they are because God, is it infuriating just how self-absorbed both of these characters are. It's maddening. Bella is the worst. I'm convinced she's a sociopath because there are so many scenes where she will describe how she should react to her classmates. She's talking about these people like they aren't people. And everything handled with her school and her classmates is just so infuriating. But okay, I, there was one other thing I wanted to address that you said where the, the flaw is that Edward wants to eat Bella. And I recognize that in theory that Bella is in danger anytime she's around Edward. But the thing is, I just don't feel the danger at all. Like there's a line where it's very early on too, which I think is a mistake. I think it's during the first time they have lunch together, Edward and Bella. And Edward says, I'm giving up trying to be good. I'm just going to do what I want now and let the chips fall where they may. And there's this whole repeated motif that, that Edward's like, what if I'm actually the bad guy? And it's such bullshit. Because it's so it's so clear he's not a bad guy. Mm-hmm. And it's so clear that he's absolutely in control. And that and I think part of the reason why I never felt the danger from him is that we never see consequences from this relationship, really, in the sense that, like, for example, so like Edward says he may kill Bella, but so far in this book, we've seen Edward save Bella's life. At least twice. There's the first time with the truck, and then oh, the the, the second, the, yes, with the rapists, which that's a oh boy. So we see those two scenes, yeah. and then I you can also say the scene at the end when he sucks the venom out or whatever, and they show up and in, in time to save her. The idea that that Edward represents a danger to her is kind of undermined by the fact that Edward has only saved her life up to this point. But it's not even that. It's just that we don't see any consequences of them starting a relationship. We don't see her friendship suffer. And part of that is because her friendships suck to begin with. So that doesn't matter. We don't (laughs) see like her relationship with her dad suffer, which again is because she hates her dad for no apparent reason. I mean, to be fair, they start a relationship and because of that, she's targeted by a vampire. Like, that is a consequence of their relationship. But uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't hold any weight for me. Because even if Edward wasn't there, there's a suggestion that Bella would have been at risk anyway from vampires passing through town, which they most likely would have because it's Forks. It's the, the least sunny part of the world, apparently. 
Right. But she would have been at, like the same amount of risk as every other human being. Maybe, but it's very clear that her sense, it's not just Edward. Everyone, all the vampires in this book are drawn to her because... No. <laughs> no, that's that's like her blood smells nice enough, but like no, in terms of like her special whatever, just Edward. It's not the same degree as Edward, certainly not, but other vampires are very much drawn to her as well. No, like once she's in the presence of some of them, like I think Alice is like, Oh, you do smell good. But it's not like a being drawn to them. And then James is like, Yeah, you also you smell good. So like her blood smells good, but it's not like yeah, okay, so let's say, I don't know, the same amount of people's blood smells good as, like, people are attractive, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a scale. Certainly she's in the top 50% or whatever, you know, like, but she's not, none of them would find her in any way, like, especially appealing. They might choose her over someone whose blood smelled worse, but there would also be people whose blood smelled better. Like, mm-hmm. she's not a particularly, like, exotic snack for a vampire. She's just like, yeah, you've got nice smelling blood. You're like a, a a nice piece of fruit or something. Like that's That was not my impression. My impression is that she was not to the same degree as Edward, but that she in particular had really good smelling blood. But perhaps my reading was incorrect. The point being, it's so frustrating that this is set in high school because the high school doesn't matter. A very easy way to show some kind of consequences is her like her grade suffering as a result of this relationship or something like that. So it just doesn't feel like there are basically no obstacles to them starting a relationship other than Edward is limited in where he can freely roam because of the sunlight. But I just didn't really feel the, the danger at all. And it's just one of those cases where, you know, you can keep telling me that there's danger, but show, don't tell. Like, it would have been cool, a very easy way to show the danger, is if uh, Bella cut herself, and then Ed mm-hmm. got, got the sniff, and something took over, and in fact, he couldn't control himself, and somebody else had to intervene, like one of the family members one of the colons had to intervene to stop him. That would have illustrated the danger Bella is putting herself in by being with Edward. But we don't get that. We're just told over and over and over, I could kill you if I wanted to. At, at a certain point, it's like, okay, yeah, you said that like countless times, but I, I, I just haven't seen it. I just haven't seen yeah. it to this point. In that particular way. I think it was a mistake not to have this book from Edward's perspective. Mm. And I can say that for sure because I've read Edward's perspective. (laughs) Uh I've read Midnight Sun. Um, The danger, in some ways, even though, like, obviously, you know he's not going to kill her because, like, you've read Twilight, feels a lot more real because you sit through that first class with him in which he imagines all the different ways he could murder her and try and get away with it. And he's sitting there imagining breaking like all the students necks and like going to town on her Mm. and so you have this like very tense scene where he's constantly coming up with new plans trying to figure out the best possible plan because he's like i don't want to be rushed with her 
Like, and if I kill all of them and they raise the alarm, then people are going to come in and I'm not going to get to take my time with her blood. And so he's coming up with more elaborate schemes to like, it's, <laughs> like I said, when Stephanie Meyer does like more horror writing, I think that's really where she sits most comfortably. And so like, yeah, if we had gotten Edward's perspective of that scene instead of Bella's, it feels a lot more like we just see him being super angry and like Bella being really uncomfortable, but like, we don't know what's going on. And yeah, that makes the danger feel less real. The funny thing about your uh, little cut hypothesis is that that happens at the beginning of the next book, not with Edward, but with one of the other, with Jasper. Oh. She gets a paper cut at the Cullens' house. Jasper makes a go for her. <gasps> and, he, you know, she has to be defended. <laughs> well, we also see that at the end of this book, too, where she's being battered by the uh, by James, right? Mm -hmm. And she she gets like a cut on her wrist or something. And Bella recognizes, oh, sh there's no delaying it because there's a very kind of like playing with his food kind of thing. Yes. It's so dark and I love it. And you have that moment where Bella gets a cut and it's bleeding. And James is like, you see him lose control. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's when the Colons arrive and rip his head off and all that jazz. But... <laughs> That was really, for me, the first time I ever felt the danger. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> like, like I said, I mean, the interesting part is he wants to eat her, and we don't see enough of how much he wants to eat her. Because he really, he really wants to eat her. Are you Team Edward? Or are you Team Jacob? Stick around for the next episode, where Morgan and I don't talk about that dynamic at all see you then I'm in love. Girl,